90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing quite well, just awaiting this cold front, so, you know, it might actually feel like not the middle of summer here. <laughs> right, yeah, it's been 70s, 80s, but it looks like we're going to be below freezing for the next 10 days or so at night here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, seems kind of normal, but also, you know, I'm on the cusp of turning on my air conditioner on November, you know, whatever it is right now, so... Yeah. It's been weird, but the chickens have certainly enjoyed it. There's lots of green grass outside, so <laughs> I guess that's an right. upside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's been great. I got nothing to complain about. Shocking, right? It, it is. <laughs> Other than the fact that we so narrowly missed each other in Norman uh, by hours. That was ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, it Considering I've been out of town so much over the past month, you know, that wasn't too surprising. But also, super bummed, obviously. Yep, I think I stopped and had lunch and headed back over here, and you got into town maybe three hours mm -hmm. later. Yep, yep. What a bummer. Oh, it just means we need to, yeah, work harder to get together. Which is funny, have we ever recorded this podcast together? I don't think we have. I don't think we have either. That's really, really weird. Hmm. Though we'll have to try it next time we're together. So I'm actually testing this week uh, some new little clip-on mics. That So if we go somewhere and want to interview somebody in person, like at a conference, mm -hmm. these literally just clip on and record like 16 hours inside them. Okay. Man, that's amazing. No little pack you have to put on your belt or anything like that? No, and they're they're like matchbook size, a little thicker. Technology, man. It's crazy. <laughs> Techno technology. So we're trying it. Uh, I've used them on several, like, Met by Monday videos that I've recorded, oh, that sort of thing. Okay. And they worked out well, so we're trying it now for the podcast. Awesome. That's great. But how will you know you're a fancy podcaster without a podcasting microphone? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, you can go back to it next week. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you uh, had written the last few shows, so it was my turn to take over show notes for a little bit. And I actually saw a really cool post on Twitter from Strike and Dip that I'm not sure if it's real, if it's fake. What There's no context. Google reverse image search helped me none. What a letdown. But it's... It's what looks like to me a lamp that is showing a couple layers of rock and these glowing, beautiful orange dikes going up between them. That's amazing. <laughs> I would put this in my living room. <laughs> Any... I would put a giant version of it as the base of a coffee table. That's exactly what I was just going to say. It's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. You slap a piece of glass on top of that bad boy, like... The conversation piece for hours. I mean, as long as you have geology nerds <laughs> hanging out with you, I guess. I don't know. Which we do. Yeah, it is true. I don't know. I think every, this... every year we have <laughs> 20 <laughs> oh, to 30. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one would leave your living room if you had that out there. Um, it's It could be a, 
conversation piece for anyone. It's very unique looking, and I can't wait because I know you will not be able to wait too long before you just make it yourself. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty um, – that's really cool. Um, I think it's really funny that that's what you are starting this off with because we're interviewing for an igneous petrologist – and I have been immersed in the world of igneous rocks for the past couple of weeks more than I have in the last, you know, eight years. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's weird. We're on the same wavelength, clearly. Clearly. And <laughs> I, so I saw that lamp. And of course, my first thought was, I don't think we've ever talked about how dikes form. <laughs> Not igneous dikes, anyway. So, yeah, we did talk about clastic dikes. Yes. Yes, we did. Episode 177, everybody, in case you want to go back and listen to those. The more interesting... Go back over two years. I know, so long (laughs) ago. The more interesting dikes, I will say. But these igneous dikes are probably the more common version of dikes. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so these are fractures that get filled with magma. Yeah, that sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and so these don't have to be. All right. I use the word asthenosphere when I'm talking about hot, juicy magma that's getting pushed up into rocks. Um, But, you know, these don't have to form super deep. These can be at all different levels, but they do form under the surface of the earth. Right. So. These dikes are an intrusive feature if we're going to use our geology words. Yes, so they form in rocks that are already in place. Mm-hmm. And now, they, be oh, go ahead. They don't have to be going into pre-existing fractures. They can fracture their own way up, right? They can. Mm-hmm. And the the rock mechanics-y person in me wants to say, or point out that they will form at right angles to the direction of maximum extension. <laughs> like you're contractually obligated to say that. <laughs> I mean, if I can't throw some Sigma one, twos and threes out, <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll take my PhD back. Oh, uh, I see. Well, you can check off your quota for November now. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that just makes sense, right? Because that's where your fractures are going to be forming. Or if you're, injecting this magma pre-fracturing it's where the weakness is and that's what this magma is going to exploit as it's moving its way up yeah so these are really nature's frack job (laughs) exactly except they do a poor job because then they solidify in place which isn't the point of a frack job (laughs) instead of putting nice porous propent in there like sand they fill it with wonderful basalt exactly (laughs) But, you know, nature's frack job, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, these things, we see them a lot on the surface, right? It's one thing that we talk about in intergeology because they're so generally, they're very obvious to pick out um, because they're made of what you just said. Most of them are made of basalt. Not always true, but a lot of them are. So they're easy to pick out, but you see them at the surface all the time, right? And they can be tiny. I think you and I have looked at little ones that are, you know, an inch across. But then also, say at field camp, um, where we sampled them before, 
huge, you know, 10 meters across, or I'm sure they can be even bigger than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, many, many tens to hundreds of meters. Right. Um, What I really find cool about them, though, is they generally don't really change width. Throughout their, yeah, as you're looking them up and down. Right. Like mm-hmm. when you get a an injection feature, if it's going to be a one meter thick dike, it's pretty much one meter thick the whole feature. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like taper down to a couple millimeters somewhere and then widen back out. Because if you think about it, you're injecting molten rock I mean, <laughs> very heavy material under great pressures it's going to try to equalize things right exactly. uh, pressure transmits very well through molten rock so you get these parallel wall sheets that are quite consistent yeah i mean if you could see like the very tip of it right the very end of the dike you might see some changes in the width but Generally, if you're looking at it at the surface, that has already been long eroded away. So you're right. Right. Yeah, remarkably. So that's also something that helps you pick them out. It's because it's this incredibly equant sort of feature, which is not what you usually see in rocks. <laughs> no, it looks it looks engineering-y. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like somebody put it there. Mm-hmm. And... Especially when you start looking at, I love looking at these things on satellite photos because you get such cool patterns. Because normally you don't just get one. Right. There's a whole family. Yeah, because if you're moving magma, it's generally a lot of magma. It's not like a tiny little stringer because that's too cold to make its way anywhere. So this is a very three-dimensional process. Yes, which is what the lamp shows. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I know that you are such an obsessive personality like I am that this thing is going to be made by the next time we record, or at least a prototype of it is. (laughs) So I love that um, one of the other podcasts I listened to that's a totally unrelated thing, the guy said that he has started asking other people, because he has the same sort of personality, like, I'm going to ultra-focus... And obsess on this one thing until it's perfect. Um, that he started saying, like, what is my current hyper-obsession? <laughs> I, I really like that terminology, oh. hyper-obsession. Oh, my gosh. And yours is building a plastic dike lamp. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's great, though. I mean, if you get some, like, orange Lexan or something, like, that's going to look so cool. I'm wondering if, like, I could 3D print it. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. I would think you would be able to. So do you 3D print it as one piece, or do you, like, actually inject the dike yourself, you know? I think a few, like, you know, use some clearish material that I can shine LEDs in. Mm-hmm, yeah. For the actual dike, and then 3D print the, the layers and paint them. Mm, okay anyway anyway so uh you you don't just get one you get these either lines or radial spokes or disc looking things and so that's that's weird 
to think about because you think about if you look up igneous dike, this 2D line that's just going straight up and down, right? But the radial dikes are so strange to me or these ones that intersect at right angles. But these are, I'm not going to say fairly common, but there are some very uh, prominent land features here in North America that are those things. So like Shiprock in the Four Corners region in the Southwest, you know, that's two intersecting dikes at right angles. That's what it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, but these like ring dikes, those are always really, really interesting. And I don't know if I've seen, I mean, I've seen sort of like ring fractures, but I don't know if I've seen ring dikes before. I've only ever seen like satellite images. Yeah. Uh, but ring and cone dikes are generally associated with volcanic activity, generally caldera volcanic activity. I mean, which makes and, sense because that's the circular part on top of the volcano. Right. So you've got a circular feature that's active and you kind of inject this cylinder, this tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Of, of magma. Which is super cool, but also in areas where you're getting extension, uh, if you've got a moderately complicated stress field, which is generally, if you're lucky, <laughs> normally they're very complicated, <laughs> uh, you can get these in echelon fractures. Mm-hmm. So you've got these kind of offset dikes that are making a, a line, but it's kind of creeping off to one side or the other. In echelon, like marching soldiers. I love that word. And that structural feature to make sense right mm-hmm. yeah that's that's cool um these are fun to look at on google earth i had an undergraduate student who was actually a science education major and for her project that she worked on with me she made a google earth tour of not only volcanoes and types of volcanoes but also these things that are associated with volcanoes. So Devil's Tower, you know, is probably the neck of a volcano. So she would talk about that. And then she did a whole bunch of different dike forms all throughout the world. So it was really, it was really neat to um, be able to see these weird ring and cone things that you just don't think about here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially not around where we are. See, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) When I talk about, uh, igneous processes in native science I obviously talk about Hawaii like and stories that native Hawaiians have about volcanoes because there aren't indigenous people in most of the U.S. not true for the west coast but in the rest of the U.S. don't have words for lava rain yeah yep so okay you, you get these these funny patterns We've established that it's when molten rock or magma flows into a crack and cools into this sheet of new rock. But one of the cool features of these to me, and this is something that you learn in intergeology, and I thought it was cool then, I still think it's cool now, is how insulated the dike is as it's cooling really modifies how it looks. Yes. So this is because how fast a body of liquid rock cools determines its grain size. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And this, the symmetry of this, I imagine, appeals to you as well. <laughs> oh, the symmetry, the heat transfer, <laughs> it's Fourier in motion. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's a lot of PMAG that gets done with this, too. Actually, we have one of the field tests for paleomagnetism is called a baked contact test because not only... Oh, yeah. Yeah, not only is that thermal (laughs) mechanism working within the dike, it's working in the country rock that it's being injected into, and it can actually reset magnetizations both in the country rock and obviously as the generally basaltic magma cools as well. Yeah, because, I mean, the heat's got to go somewhere. The heat sink is what's next to it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And it's molten rock. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's got a significant heat capacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the as the grain or as the magma cools, the slower that takes place, the longer the grains have to grow mm-hmm. and group together with other similar things. Mm-hmm. So you get big grains. Mm-hmm. But when it cools really fast, that doesn't have time to happen. This geochemical differentiation and you get little bitty grains. So, not only does it tell you about how insulated it was, but also, as you would expect, the edges are very tiny, the center is bigger, and yes, it's generally perfectly symmetric. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, mm. very pleasing <laughs> to look at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it... it we said these are generally basaltic, but I mean, it really just depends on what kind of magma you have hanging out in the area, right? They don't always have to be basaltic, but what you just said for grain size, you know, definitely, definitely holds true. And we're calling them dikes, but you, if you study these, obviously this is geology, so there's all kinds of more intense names you can start calling them. Applite dikes are... Um, like these dikes that are these fine-grained ones, like John was saying. So they're generally like tinier dikes, and they have small grain sizes. And these are almost always sort of granitic in um, composition instead of basaltic. So they're always kind of sort of reds and whites. I'm not going to say they're prettier. That's not necessarily it. But they are different than like... Prettier than a big black uniform mass of amorphous yeah that you can't pick anything out of yeah (laughs) (laughs) just just saying yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) some applite dikes around their around their edges get these real cool i mean they're all tiny crystals but these real cool differentiations so you can kind of get some little stripies in there um my voice got real high because applite dikes are tiny (laughs) so you have to talk about them (laughs) An octave higher than normal. <laughs> right. Little known fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is a well-known fact, sir. <laughs> All you have to do is show a baby kitten. Everyone's voice. Two octaves higher. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we said generally basaltic, but they can be whatever. And these dikes, you can have what's, when you, when you get really cool looking ones, you can have this range between like tiny little applied dikes, much larger, you know, meters across dikes. And if you've ever gone to the mountains in Colorado and you've driven west on I-70, that's what you see 
for, you know, the first 45 minutes of your drive as you're going west are all these intersecting granitic and basaltic dikes, and they are amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the dikes are generally something that's going to be more weathering resistant than what they intruded into, so you get all these beautiful features. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, this is certainly true in areas where you have magmatic intrusion into sedimentary rocks. And that yields things like shiprock, right? So all the sediments have eroded away. But what you're left with is this much more resistant igneous rock that's standing there, you know, as a looks like a ship going through the waters of igneous rocks out there, hence the name shiprock. So when you have dikes in sedimentary rocks is when you get some really cool weathering features for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So another cool feature in them that I really like is when you have big chunks, big grains called phenocrysts, they're acted upon by the flow. You know, there's drag against these big chunks. So they orient to the flow direction. So you get these pointers of what direction liquid rock was flowing millions of years ago. <laughs> yes, this is fantastic. So there's a whole branch of um, rock magnetics called anisotropy of magnetic susceptibility or we call it AMS, um, which we should totally talk about on here. And it is alignment of magnetic minerals. And so very frequently, because magnetite, basically, if given the chance, will form these needles. Okay, that's what it likes to form. And so if you think of like a cigar-shaped thing floating along in a moving mass of magma, it does exactly what you just said, John, is that it aligns itself in the direction of flow, right? They don't roll sideways, they they align themselves with the flow. And so we can actually, a bunch of AMS studies have been done looking at dikes and trying to determine which way they came from because we're looking at dikes on the surface, right? Lots of stuff has happened to rocks (laughs) before they got to the surface. And using AMS studies, if you can't see these big chunks of crystals, you can actually see tiny, tiny micron size crystals that are still aligned with the flow direction too yeah mm-hmm. i mean looking at those big phenocrysts is even prettier for sure <laughs> yeah and you say okay well it doesn't take a genius to figure out what direction molten rock was flowing i mean <laughs> but it can be tricky especially if this gets weathered and then deformed and now it's tilted on its side and yeah that's the problem right especially yeah. if it's in an igneous body. So you don't have any sedimentary clues that help you figure out which way is up. You would think that that is an easy thing to do, but it's not at all because a lot of these are currently in places where there are mountains. A lot of them came from pre-existing mountains that are now eroded away and we just see what's left. Um, And so up, is actually quite difficult to determine sometimes, especially without having these sedimentary rocks, like I said, that have very clear, well, 
not very clear, but could have more <laughs> clear ups and downs than a magma chamber. Because once you uncover that, it could have been formed in any direction. Right. Okay. And what direction is up is, it always sounds like <laughs> a simple question. Yes, exactly. But it never is. Whether you're trying to get out of a flooded car, trying to fly an airplane, mm -hmm. trying to determine which direction is up in geologic time in a section oh, that yeah. might have been overturned. Mm -hmm. I, it sounds like such an innocent question, but it hardly ever is. Yes, that is exactly right. I have a friend who, he was a naval test pilot, and then he went on to teach uh, the naval test at the Naval Test Pilot School. And that's the scariest stuff. He would talk about being put into these huge pools and submerged, and like they're in a tube, and so it's dark, and it's simulating you know, a crash or flying, you know, without your instruments. And they're like, all right, figure it out, you know. And he was like, it's amazing how disoriented you could get. You would think you would know when your body's upside down. But no. Nope. But no. Nope. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a whole other show, how you can tell a rock is up. Yes, and for sure. It has, so... Yeah, yeah. It has one of my favorite geologic words called a geopedal and we'll just let that be a cliffhanger for next week <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Ah. but these dikes don't have to be just these amorphous things they can also do some really cool stuff as they cool down right yeah right those are the best <laughs> i'm wagging my non-existent tail because this is one of my favorite pieces of rock i've ever collected columnar joints yep <laughs> all right <laughs> i mentioned devil's tower earlier so if you've been there or if you just look up a picture of it you see that there are, well if you're looking at a picture of it it just looks like a whole bunch of weird rocks that they're like hexagonal straws all packed together right or watch the movie close encounters of the third kind yes yeah, you'll see them there uh, for sure. Or if you've been to the Giant's right. Causeway in Ireland, they're there as well. But yeah, so these are really neat features that result from the cooling and contraction of the rock, uh, breaking along these nice crystalline symmetry planes. Yeah, and so they're, I mean, the one I have is a pentagon because nature's not perfect all the time. Uh, <laughs> but we collected these out in New Mexico where there is a ton of, volcanic activity because it's in the Rio Grande Rift and yeah it was a big a big field trip we all wanted to see who could carry the biggest columnar basalt and my friend carried one that unfortunately when we got home was three pounds more than mine hers was like 46 pounds and mine was only 43 it was very sad I definitely remember on field trips people like somebody get a hand sample of something that's cool now. Somebody else, says, I'm going to get one, that, you know, this. And exactly. By the, by the end, you have people who are laboring about to, about to die of dysentery on the Oregon Trail trying to get this rock back to the van. Oh, that's what I felt like, yeah. And I'm saying, you know, you shouldn't collect rocks when it's, you're in anywhere where the rocks are special, don't need to be removed, all that. But sometimes you're just out in the desert and you see some cool rocks, you know? So... Uh, so I have this huge 
columnar joint. It's probably like a foot tall, something like that. And we absolutely use it as a step stool outside. <laughs> right. <laughs> as one should. <laughs> so, yeah, those are um, really, really cool, especially if you look at these Devil Towers pictures or these giant causeways pictures. You know, it's as they're cooling and they shrink and crack in these ways, but they're still attached. So some of them won't be attached to the ground anymore, but they're attached further up. So they break in these really, it looks like a surreal landscape, like you're in a crystal palace or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I highly, highly recommend Googling columnar jointing and then you'll be stuck on Google for an hour at least. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the last thing that I was going to mention on these is, well, we said these are generally vertical or sub-vertical. But what about when you inject and maybe you hit a weak layer horizontally? You've got a very competent layer above and rather soft and friable layer. Well, you can inject horizontal dikes, but we call those sills. Right. Exactly. And this happens very frequently when you're in the situation like at Shiprock where you're injecting into sedimentary layers because generally those layers are, you know, laid down horizontally to begin with, and so the bedding planes are an automatic and widespread sheet of weakness and you can easily spread those sedimentary layers apart. It's like having two pieces of bread and then injecting jelly into the middle of them. And that's a sill. Yeah, I like it. Yep. Are you hungry now? <laughs> and peanut butter is all that metamorphic crap. <laughs> Nobody wants that. It's too difficult no, to no, talk about. <laughs> you, you want a lot of it. You want the chunky peanut butter. Oh. Well, I'm the sorry. The chunky peanut butter. Spreading peanuts would um, be best, actually. Sorry that we're not friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's like, I don't know, cracked your, injected something into your brain to make such ridiculous statements as extra chunky peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and it is worth, you know, we mentioned towards the top of the show that there are dikes that are sedimentary and we'll point you back to episode 177. Other than saying that they're weird. You can form them with fluid <laughs> pressure and inject sedimentary things. You can also crack surfaces with things like permafrost and then fill them in, though I don't really call that a dike because it's not forming in the ground. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not an intrusive feature. It's a surface feature that's getting filled in and buried. Right, exactly. But if you did bury it for long enough and a million years later, somebody's going to probably call them dikes. So, you know. Right. Proto dikes, I guess. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still enough uncertainty around how most of them actually got in place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're just lucky enough that there's been enough erosion that we see all these cool winds. Um, you know, if you go to Black Canyon at the Gunnison, you'll see these granitic dikes all over the walls out there. Like I said, I-70 in Colorado. Um, it's just... It's 
a spectacular geologic feature that anyone can appreciate, but the process behind them makes them even cooler, like you've been saying the whole show. Right. Yep. Exactly. But now I think it's time to go to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday, which is related in the way that, uh, you know, we can call anything anything. And as scientists, we generally like to make it as complex as we can. <laughs> oh, man. This was good. Did you find this or did Daryl find this? This is from Daryl. <laughs> this has Daryl written all over it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it has the Journal of Political Economy written all over it. But, yes, the, it is a very... Uh, a very, a very good contribution from Daryl. Mm -hmm. Yes. And from John Siegfried, who wrote this, um, a first lesson in econometrics. And as we were, you know, prepping for the show and figuring out when we're going to meet, um, John texted me and said, don't worry, it takes 40 seconds to read this. <laughs> Which is always a plus for a fun paper. <laughs> it is one page. <laughs> it is correct. And I love everything about it because it is exactly what happens in scientific publications. So <laughs> it's so funny. So this, you know, a first lesson in econometrics, of course, has to start with the easiest thing. And we can't just keep that easy. But it's that it's never good <laughs> taste to express the sum of two quantities in the form one plus one equals two, right? That does not appear complex enough. That does not appear <laughs> like people should be paying your salary to discover, write, and explain one plus one equals two. Exactly. So you have to make yourself worthwhile and make it even more complicated. And you start to learn that in graduate school. One equals natural log of E. A little more complicated. Right. And one is also sine squared of Q plus cosine squared of Q. <laughs> this has to be your favorite line, right? In addition, it is obvious to the casual reader that two equals the summation from n equals zero to infinity of one over two to the n. Somewhere Dr. Sonnison is smiling about this right now. <laughs> yes. Yes, because it's obviously a casual reader that that is. Um, so therefore, we can rewrite one plus one equals two as natural log of e plus sine squared q plus cosine squared q equals the sum from n equals zero to infinity of one on two to the n. <laughs> And that can be readily confirmed that one equals, oh no, gosh, I haven't seen this in so long. So hyper cosine? Hyperbolic cosine. <laughs> yep, <yeah>. of P. <laughs> this is, this is See, I was up to till this one, right? So uh, hyper cosine of P, the square root of one minus hyper tangent squared of P. Yep. <laughs> And we all know that E can be defined as the limit as delta goes to infinity of one plus one on delta to the delta. <laughs> Which you can simplify. <laughs> oh my gosh, this one might be too big to read, right? Um. <laughs> oh no, no, so it's the natural log of the limit is delta goes to infinity of one plus one on delta to the delta plus sine squared Q plus cosine squared Q equals the sum from N equals zero to infinity of hyperbolic cosine p times the square root of one minus hyperbolic tangent squared of p on two to the n. If we note that. 
Factorial of zero <laughs> equals one? No. <laughs> and then the last line, the work on this paper was supported by no one. <laughs> the author would like to credit an unknown but astute source for the original seeds for the analysis. <laughs> I mean, this guy wasn't surfing the internet and came up with this. It's from 1970. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, this is fantastic. So... Volume this was written in a bar. Exactly. Volume 78, number six, Journal of Political Economy. You should absolutely look this up. This absolutely came from a napkin. <laughs> and I don't know, 10 bears? No, this couldn't be 10 bears. Three bears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're pretty far past the bomber peak there. Too, yeah, so. exactly. Like, oh, man. That hyperbolic cosine took me by surprise. I haven't thought about that in so long. And my calculus two teacher pronounced it kosh and tanth, which was ridiculous to listen to. <laughs> and I had a lot of flashbacks <laughs> that and sink, which also <laughs> makes no sense. Like, just say it. <laughs> yeah, I actually had to use a hyperbolic sign a while back. Oh, man, that's exciting. <laughs> and that was one of those things where I was like, I forget. Got that I paid a lot of money to learn this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, it was a lot of PTSD when I got there. Like, oh, look, there it is. And yeah, yeah. Kosh. Kosh. There you go. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and I mean, everybody loves a good limit. Oh, man. I knew if we traded those back and forth. I'm like, I'm going to get that one. <laughs> Everybody loves a good limit. That's how you prove calculus works. Hey, okay. I need you to to send that in to me. We've been having lots of discussions about the calculus sequence and whether we should take some out for geology. And I said, no, you have to do limits and summations. I said, that is the most useful thing. And I've been getting well, If you take any more math out, it's liquor and guessing. Amen. Might as well. Nope. I won't say that one on there. But <laughs> well, and I have to admit that uh, that's based on a Dilbert. Yes, yes, of course. Everyone uh, has that Dilbert hanging up in their graduate student office. <laughs> right, but no, without no, you have to have limits. Otherwise, calculus doesn't make sense. Exactly. That is exactly right. And summations are one of the most useful things. I mean, they're awful, but just thinking about it in a rational way, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's what you need math for, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, and people are like, well, I'm never going to use a Taylor sequence. And it's like, well, that's how all of your computers calculate. Exactly. Like sine, cosine, tangent. Like, mm. you actually do, and you should yeah. know that. You should. You should know your kosh. <laughs> <laughs> you should know when you can make approximations, simplify things, drop terms, all that stuff. I was impressed that I remembered instantly that that exclamation point is factorial. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. That was, this is fantastic. I'm going to print it off. I'm actually going to assign it in our graduate student seminar and see who gets it. <laughs> Yep. Well, actually, you should you should start off by giving equation eight, the full Ooh, complex yeah. thing, 
and ask what simplified what is this oh my gosh i think everyone would drop my class because you don't need to know the values of q p n del nothing nope you just need to know how those things interact together and therefore you have the answer it's really good. That's why I love when you can have an equation that has not a single number in it, but has a numeric answer. <laughs> That's... <laughs> it just makes me smile. I know. My entire <laughs> partial differential equations class, right? I keep that book at eye level so I can look at it and say the only numbers in this book are the page numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I took that class. <laughs> I got a B, but I took it. <laughs> I love talking to our neighbors that... Uh, still can't get over the fact that I spent a semester in a class <laughs> about an imaginary number that doesn't exist. <laughs> and actually use it to do work. And use it. Oh, <laughs> man. That's good. Math is its whole... It's its whole own set of hilarity, really. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. I'm going to send this to my math professor friend. She also does math with no numbers. It's almost too much for me to listen to when I say, now what do you do again? Right. <laughs> but I think she will find this great. So, Excellent, Daryl. No, I mean, Thank you again. <laughs> yeah, you got to love it. So uh, <laughs> if you've got your own absurd proof that you want to send in. <laughs> we'll read it all. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll read it all. Uh, use lemmas when you can, though, please. Uh, or if you've got your own pictures of dike lamps that you found <laughs> i am taking submissions on how i should make this whether it's a resin pour or a 3d print or what mm -hmm. um, but i would i would love your suggestions shannon how can they get a hold of us please send those in show at don'tpanicgeocast.com you can find us on twitter which is where john found his dike lamp <laughs> We are at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. And you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.